So what style of evangelism best fits you? Over the last several weeks, we have been examining those six styles of evangelism from Lee Strobel. The direct style describes the person who is eager to confront anyone with the claims of Christ because of the deep-seated conviction that everybody needs to hear about Jesus. It's personified by Peter and John as they stand before the Sanhedrin. Maybe it's the intellectual style that describes the person who aims to capture the mind in pursuit of the heart by utilizing reason and logic and apologetics. This is Paul on Mars Hill. Maybe it's the testimonial style. The testimonial style describes a person who says, I share the gospel by telling my story because if God can save a wretch like me, I'm confident he can save you as well. This is the man who was born blind in John chapter 9. The invitational style is best illustrated by the Samaritan woman who said, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Christ? I believe he's my Christ. Could he be your Christ? I just invite you to come and see. Today we will examine the relational style. This is the person who says, I've got to take my good friend to my best friend, Jesus. Because of the years of friendship, you've stockpiled the right to be heard. And because of your love for your good friend, one that you've shared life with and shared experiences with, because you love your good friend, you care about his or her salvation. So you want to take your good friend to your best friend named Jesus. Next week, we'll conclude by talking about the serving style of evangelism. This is the person who says that I want to show Christ even before I speak Christ. So I ask you, what style of evangelism seems to best fit you? We're all shaped a little bit differently. We're all wired a little bit differently. If you are in Christ, you have the mandate of the Messiah to go and tell the good news of Jesus. But how you go about doing it may be a little bit different than the way I go about doing it. But at the same time, we're all compelled to go and to tell. So what evangelistic style seems to best fit you? Maybe it is the relational style. I invite you to take your Bible, draw your sword, turn to Luke chapter 5. I want to read in your hearing verses 17 to 26. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 5, allow me to begin at verse 17. One day he was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. The power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, They went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks such blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? 
Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them all, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe, and they said, we have seen remarkable things today. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. This story comes at us early in the ministry of Jesus, and even though it was early in his ministry, the crowds around Jesus were growing exponentially. It is Mark in his version of the story who tells us that this action took place in a home located in Capernaum. Apparently Luke doesn't care about the setting of the story. He doesn't tell us anything about the house. He doesn't tell us the location is in Capernaum. What he is concerned about is the demographics of the crowd. In that crowd, certainly there were friends of Jesus and followers of Jesus. But on this day, Luke tells us there were some foes of Jesus. For the first time ever in Luke's gospel, we are introduced to Pharisees and teachers of the law. Luke tells us that they came from the entire region. They came from all over Galilee, Judea, even the capital city of Jerusalem. This upstart rabbi named Jesus was garnering so much attention that even those in the capital city of Jerusalem sent a delegation of Pharisees and teachers of the law. They wanted to make sure that he was walking down the straight and narrow. They wanted to make sure that Jesus would not deviate too much to the left or the right of Judaism. So they came to investigate Jesus. The Pharisees. They were devout Jews. They were not priests. But they felt that it was their obligation, their very calling, to make sure that the nation of Israel was tied tightly to the Mosaic law. So what they wanted to do is wherever there was confusion, they wanted to bring clarity. For example, in the law of Moses, we are told uh, that we are to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, for we are not to work on the Sabbath. But people throughout the years ask the question, what is work? What constitutes work? How much energy can you exert and not be guilty of work? Or where is the line of demarcation? That if you cross it, then you start work. And so the Pharisees came in to describe all of that, define all of that. They wanted to help out God and Moses. For where God and Moses were fuzzy, they wanted to bring some clarity. The teachers of the law elsewhere are called scribes. They were religious lawyers. They're oftentimes on the heels of the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These scribes, they codified the interpretation and the application of the Pharisees. They wanted to make sure they could write it down so that everybody could remember. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they wanted to make sure that people listened and followed God's law. I guess you could say that their motives at best were noble, but their execution was pathetic. 
all the rules, all the regulations, they were cumbersome. They were heavy. I can well imagine that the Jewish people of the first century were, were schizophrenic because they never knew if they were in step or out of step. Were they doing too much or too little? Could they do this? Could they not do that? They always had to check with the Pharisees and the scribes. Am I in line? Am I out of bounds? I can well imagine that what, what started out as something to be helpful became something that was a great hindrance. So these man-made rules and regulations were extremely heavy and extremely cumbersome. All the Pharisees were there. The teachers of the law were there just to listen to Jesus. Is he a teacher that's in step with Judaism? Or is he going to encourage people to revolt and rebel and somehow get out of bounds? So they are there in the crowd. Luke tells us that the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to heal the sick. For Luke to say the power of the Lord was present does not mean that the power of the Lord was on Jesus this day, but not yesterday. It doesn't mean that the power of the Lord was on Jesus today, but it will be gone tomorrow. No, Luke is comparing and contrasting the power of the Lord versus the power of the Pharisees. The Pharisees have some power, but Jesus has God's power. The Pharisees have some jurisdiction, but God has all jurisdiction. The power of the Lord was upon Jesus. Jesus had in his arsenal the very power of God. That same power that spoke the world into existence was Jesus. The same power that made something out of nothing was Jesus. The same power that raised an army out of a valley of dry bones was Jesus. The same power that preserved Jonah in the smelly belly of the fish, cooled down the temperature for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shoved the mouths of the lions in Daniel's den, and was able to raise the widow's son in Zarephath. All that power was in Jesus. Jesus was and is the power of the Lord. Now that's good news for us. Because what that means is that the Jesus that was in that house is the same Jesus that's in this house. The same power that rested on Jesus in that house is the same power that rests on Jesus in this house. So regardless of what you drag into church, regardless what drags you into church, regardless of the heavy things that you bring into the sanctuary, I want you to know you've come to the place where Jesus is proclaimed. You've come to the place where there is the power of the Lord rest upon Jesus. Jesus and Jesus' people so that God has the capacity in Christ to heal your body. God has the capacity in Christ to mend your marriage. God, through Christ, can retrieve your prodigal son. God can rescue your daughter. God, in Christ, can make a way out of no way. God, in Christ, can open up a door of employment where there was unemployment. I'm just here to tell you that God can break the chains of the attic. God, in Christ, has the power to do immeasurably more we can ever ask, think, or imagine. You've come to the right house today. You've come into this house because in this house is the same Jesus as in that house of Luke chapter 5. And the same power that was on that Jesus is the same power on this Jesus. Jesus is here and he has the power of the Lord. The power of the Lord was present and Jesus healed the sick. It is with that conviction in mind that Jesus has the power to fix it that we come to our first of three characteristics 
of relational evangelism. The first characteristic is this. Relational evangelism begins with a conviction that I must take my friend to Jesus. It begins with a conviction. I must take my friend to Jesus. Now why must you take your friend to Jesus? Well, because Jesus has the power to fix it. Whatever the problem, whatever the prognosis, whatever the predicament is for your friend, Jesus has the power to fix it. And your friend needs more than anything else a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And while it's true that Jesus has the power to fix it, and that what your friend needs more than anything else is a personal relationship with your best friend, Jesus, there's also something more to this conviction. This conviction says that I am the human instrument that's going to take my friend to Jesus. Now, I want to push the pause button right there, and I want you to clearly hear what I'm saying and understand what I'm not saying. In no way am I diminishing the sovereignty of God. At a very real level, God doesn't need me. God's going to do his work with or without me, but by the sovereign grace of God, he invites us into the process. So if you're in Christ, he's invited you into the process of evangelizing the world, telling your good friend about your best friend, Jesus. And this deep-seated conviction of one who embodies relational evangelism is the conviction that I must take my friend to Jesus. I must be the human instrument that takes my friend to Christ. This is... The four friends of the paralytic, right? They bring their bestie to Jesus. Now, to be honest, we don't know much about the paralytic, do we? We don't know his story. We don't know his background. We know nothing about his family. We don't even know his name. The only thing Luke tells us is something about his condition. He utilizes the Greek word paraluo. It's translated paralytic. But literally, the Greek word paraluo means weakened in the knees. Normally, that came from some trauma in the back of the legs. And maybe, maybe that's this man's story. Maybe this man at one time could run and jump with the best of them. Maybe at one time, this man was very independent. But something happened because of suffering, because of sickness. Something happened. And now this one who was so independent is now dependent upon his friends. Once again, it's Mark in his rendering of the story who tells us that there were four friends. That makes sense, doesn't a friend for each corner of the mat? And Mark does tell us there were four friends that carried their bestie paralytic to Jesus. Once again, Luke doesn't say much about the number of friends. In fact, he doesn't say anything about the number of friends. But he does speak about the persistency of those friends. They were so determined. They were so persistent. Which that brings us to the second characteristic. That relational evangelism is confident that nothing will hinder me from getting my friend to Jesus. Nothing is going to hinder me from getting my friend to Jesus. The friends of the paralytic, they bring their buddy who's on a mat. They make their way to the house. They heard the crowd before they saw the crowd. The crowd was so large. It had been growing exponentially. By the time that they get there, they realize there's no way into that house. 
the door is covered up with people. Individuals are hanging out the windows. And at what point, at this point, for how many of you would you have said, you know what, we gave it our best shot. We've got to come back another day. I mean, there's no way we can get in. We can't go through the door. We've been elbowing our way and been pushed back. We've been trying to nudge our way. We've been trying to push our way, shove our way in. We've been pushed back. I mean, we, we tried. We got a little college try. We've done our best, but we can't get through the window. We can't get through the front door. I mean, let, let's just go back and, and come another day. Maybe Jesus will extend his stay here, here in Capernaum. Maybe uh, we'll be able to catch up with him at another time. How many of you in the crowd right now, how many of you listening to my voice would have said, you know what? We did our best. We can't do any more. I've invited my friend to church, and he told me no. I've tried to share the gospel with my friend, and she shuts me down. I mean, I've tried it uh, several times, but, but how, how often do I have to keep on being determined and persistent in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? I mean, how many of us, how many of us would have turned around and just walked away? But these four friends, they were determined that nothing was going to hinder them from getting their friend to Jesus. I'm sure that one of the friends said to the other three, well, shut the front door. What are we going to do now? And somebody else said, take him to the roof. Excuse me? Take him to the roof. Let's hoist him onto our shoulders. Let's climb the side steps that are located on the side of the house, which was pretty common in the first century. Let's go to the top of that one-story, one-level house, get on the flat roof, and from that vantage point, we can get him to Jesus. And they said, nothing's going to hinder us from plopping our friend at the feet of Jesus. So they hoisted the mat on their shoulders. They maneuvered those side steps. They went on top of the flat roof. They began to tear away with their very hands the clay tile, and the muddy thatch of that ceiling. And they did everything they possibly could to get their friend to Jesus. When I hear this story, and if you give me some sanctified imagination, when I see this story, I see it from inside the house. And I wonder, what did the crowd do when the debris from the ceiling started falling to the floor? I mean, Jesus never missed a beat. He kept on preaching. He kept on teaching. But what did the crowd do? Hey, Gertrude, you see all that falling from the sky? Look at that. It's coming out from the ceiling. What's going on there? I mean, all it takes on a Sunday morning is for one person to get up from their seat and go to the restroom. And half the crowd, they look and say, golly, I wonder what he's doing. He's going to the bathroom. Hey, stay with me. Stay up here. I mean, all it takes is one person to get up and leave. And half of y'all like, what? I wonder where he's going. He's going to the restroom. He'll be back. Right? Because we, we all get so distracted. Squirrel, there he goes. Oh, what? I can imagine the crowd that day, they looked up and they saw the debris falling to the floor. Of course, I always like to think about the homeowner. What was he thinking? Is insurance going to cover this? <laughs> but somehow, someway, those friends are so determined, nothing's going to hinder them from getting their bestie to Jesus. So they pull away all the clay tiles and they gently lower him on his mat 
until he rests at the feet of Jesus. What a great place to be. What a great place to plop your friend right there at the feet of Jesus. And Luke says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. For the longest time, that statement was problematic to me. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. For many years, I interpreted that as when Jesus saw the faith of those four friends, he then turned to the paralytic and said, your sins are forgiven. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is that nowhere in the gospel does the gospel advocate a borrowed faith. You're not going to heaven because your friends are Christians. You don't have salvation because mom and dad always were at church and took you to church. You're not a Christian just because your girlfriend is a follower of Jesus. Faith in the gospel has to be personal. It can never be borrowed. So for the longest time, I thought, what is going on in this sentence that Jesus saw the faith of the four friends of the paralytic and then turning to the paralytic, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. How could that man borrow the faith of his four friends? For the longest time, it was a problem for me until I took a closer look at the words. When Jesus saw their faith, T-H-E-I-R, that's how we spell it in English. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. Yeah, when Jesus saw their faith. I was just checking you guys to make sure I was right. When he saw their faith, the there can include not only four but five. That when Jesus saw their faith, it's the faith of all five of them, not just the four on the edges of the mat, but also the paralytic. I can visualize him that as he's being lowered, he's looking over in great anticipation, saying, hey, Jesus, I'm coming. Here I come. I know you can fix it. I believe you can. And when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the paralytic and his four friends, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Because faith can never be borrowed. It always has to be personal. When Jesus said that, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they said, whoa, time out, out of bounds. Who does this fellow think he is? He's guilty of blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Now that statement, only God can forgive sins, that is a theologically accurate statement. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive your sins fully, freely, and forever. Only God can forgive sin. You can't forgive your sins for all of eternity. There is no minister who can forgive your sins sufficiently for all of eternity. There is no action you can do that would merit the forgiveness of your sin. Only God can forgive your sins. That is a theologically accurate statement. Where they were wrong is that they failed to see that the one seated in front of them was God in the flesh. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is the God-man. Fully God, fully human. He's not some 50-50 split, 80-20 split one way or the other. He's 100% God and 100% human. He is the God-man. And Jesus as the God-man has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus knowing what is in their hearts. He says, which is easier to make which statement is easier to say your sins are forgiven 
or to say to a paralytic, take up your mat and walk. This story is more than just a miraculous story of physical healing. In this story, Jesus ties together his power to heal and his authority to forgive sins. Jesus came not just to physically liberate us from the bondage of sin and disease, but Jesus came to liberate us from the power of sin and to save us from our sins and to save us from the very wrath of God that should be poured out against us because of our rebellion against God Almighty and a holy God. So, so Jesus came in this story to tie together in a nice bow his power and his authority. Which brings us to the third characteristic, that relational evangelism is confident that Jesus has the power to heal and the authority to save. Jesus and Jesus alone has the power to heal and the authority to save, not just in my life, but in the life of my friend. Not just in your life, but in the life of your friends. Jesus asked them, which statement is easier to make? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? What he's really asking is this. Which statement requires more immediate, visible evidence to prove the reality of the statement? Anybody can say to anybody, your sins are forgiven. What's the immediate evidence of that? Well, I mean, you could say, well, when somebody accepts Christ and, and they have liquid love streaming down their cheeks, that's evidence of forgiveness of sin. Or you could say that when they go back to their seat, they've got a smile across their face. They've got peace in their heart. That's evidence of God's salvation. And I won't deny any of that. But the reality is, Jesus can declare your sins are forgiven. And immediately, you look just about the same way going back to your seat as you did coming from your seat. But you say to a paralytic who can't get up and walk, you say to him, get up, take up your mat, and walk. The next moment gives the evidence. If he's able to get up off the mat, then what you said is true. If he's still lying there on the mat, moments after you declare, get up and walk, then it only gives evidence that you are a phony. What Jesus is doing is he's tying together his power to heal, his authority to forgive sins. So that you may know, Jesus says, that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. He turned to the paralytic and he said, get up, take up your mat and go home. And Luke tells us the same thing that Mark tells us. Immediately, this man jumped to his feet, picked up his mat, and he went out rejoicing. Jesus gave proof in that moment of that healing that it was more than just physical, it was also spiritual. Because Jesus, who is the God-man, he has the power to heal and the authority to save. These friends of the paralytic, they knew, I've got to get my friend to Jesus because my friend not only needs to walk again, but he needs to know his creator. And, and, and they would not let anything hinder them from getting their best friend to Jesus because they knew that Jesus had the power to heal and the authority to save. So this man walked out rejoicing. 
He wasn't able to get into the house because the people would not move. They would not budge. But when he was healed, it was like the parting of the Red Sea. And he walked right out in plain view of everybody. He walked out rejoicing. Why was he rejoicing? Not only because he could walk, but also because he could worship. Not only because he could run, but now he was declared righteous. Not only because he could skip, but now he was saved. Not only because he was free to move, but now he had forgiveness of sin. Not only was he one who could move, but now he knew his Messiah. This man had been healed physically and spiritually because in this moment, Jesus ties together, he tethers together his ability to heal and to save. He has the power to heal, the authority to save. And this man walked out rejoicing because he knew that his body had been healed and even more so, his spirit had been set free. And I don't think that this man ever got over his salvation experience. If you come tomorrow to the celebration of life service for Phil Cochran, I will make the statement that Phil Cochran never got over being saved. I mean, if you knew Phil, you knew his story that it wasn't until the age of about 40 or 41 that he came to know Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. And if Jesus could save a wretch like Phil, he never got over it. I think that for the longest time, maybe forever, there was a little bit of Phil that was shocked that God could save a wretch like him. But he knew that God saved him, and he never got over it. Friends, May you and I never get over our salvation. May we never walk with Jesus so long that somehow his sweet salvation gets stale. It's impossible for his salvation to get stale. It's always so sweet. May you and I never get over our salvation. This man went out rejoicing, not only because he could walk, but now he could worship. He had been set free physically and spiritually. Because Jesus has the power to heal and the authority to save. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that Jesus has both power and authority. It'd be tragic if he just had power but no authority. It'd be equally tragic if he had authority but no power. Jesus has power and authority. I know it comes as a shock to you, but there are times that I go to the gym and work out. I know you can't tell it, but I do it. And when I go and work out, I'm always enamored. By those men that could bench press 500 pounds or more. Another shock to you, I can't really bench press 500 pounds. Never really been close to 500 pounds. But there's some guys, they bench press over 500, squat over 750. I mean, that's power. You see them and you think, wow, that man is a powerful man. Both of our children graduated from Briarwood Christian School. And if you've ever tried to navigate Highway 119 about 7.30 any work day of the week, you know it can be kind of scary and hairy. Until the police officer steps onto oncoming traffic and raises his hand. And by that police officer raising his hand, he stops an 18-wheeler that's barreling down 119. That's authority. 
I'm here to tell you, Jesus has power and authority. He has the power to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. He has the authority so that everything is subject to him. Everything is subordinate to him. Everything seen and unseen, visible and invisible, must be under the feet of Jesus. Jesus has all authority. Jesus has all power. The one who's in this house is the same one who was in that house for this Jesus has the power to heal and the authority to save. Because of that, that man went out rejoicing. And everybody else in the house, they said, you know what? We've seen remarkable things today. Remarkable things. This is not like an everyday occurrence. These are remarkable things on this remarkable day because the remarkable Jesus has done a remarkable thing in our very remarkable sight. We can't get over what Jesus has done. Once again, I don't know about you, but every day and twice on Sunday, I want him to do remarkable things. I want to be able to see remarkable things of Jesus. And when I see a teenage boy come to faith in Jesus Christ, and I watch him go from no faith to faith, from death into life, friend, that's a remarkable thing. When I see a marriage that's mended, it was on the rocks, now it's strong as rock, for it's on the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a remarkable thing. When I hear the story of a prodigal who's been in the far country, but he or she comes back home, and the waiting father in heaven is there on the porch waiting and watching for that child to come over the horizon, and God runs and throws his arms around her, throws his arms around him, and God says to that son or that daughter, you are my child, you are blessed, my friend. That is a remarkable thing. When an addict has chains of addiction broken off their soul, that is a remarkable thing. When God does something that seems impossible when God makes a way out of no way when the helpless are helped, when the hopeless are given hope, when that happens I just say God has done a remarkable thing and this day I wonder is there anyone here who needs forgiveness of sin? Is there anyone here who has a friend they need to bring to Jesus? Is there anyone here who needs for their soul to be restored? Is there anyone here who is grieving, who needs the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is there anyone here in need of anything? Because our God can do it because in Jesus Christ you've got power and authority he has all power in his hands and he has authority over all things for everything is subject unto him in Jesus he has the power to heal and the authority to save so this morning I wonder do you need the remarkable Jesus to do a remarkable thing in your life if so You've come to the right house because in this house is the same Jesus as was in that house of Luke chapter 5. If you need for him to do something remarkable, he can. He will. He wants to. All you have to do is surrender yourself to him. Or maybe all you need to do is just plop your friend at the feet of Jesus. There's no better place to be than at the feet of Christ. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. And Lord, for some of us, relational evangelism is exactly who we are. So Lord, help us to be the human instrument that takes our friend to Jesus. Help nothing to hinder us from getting that friend to Jesus. And Lord, help us to know that the Jesus that we place our friend in front of 
has the power to heal, the authority to save. Lord Jesus, what's needed in our friend's life just might be needed in our life. So Lord, we give this invitation. Move and have your way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.